You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Paulette Perhatch. Hi, this is Emily Guy Birkin. I'm Ben Luthi, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. Should you pursue freelance writing? When I started thinking about how to intro the show about freelance writing in the personal finance community, I couldn't help but cut and paste a section from Paulette Perhatch's bio. I paraphrase. Paulette Perhatch's writing has been rejected from some of the nation's finest publications in which she goes to list a gazillion major outlets. Her rigorous study at the University of Florida, Princeton Review's number one party school in the nation in 2008, included courses on drug and alcohol abuse, geology, and racquetball. She did not receive her MFA from Iowa, Columbia, or from Syracuse. She was not the winner of the ASME internship in New York. She was not selected for the editorial assistant job at Coastal Living. She did not get the internship at This American Life, although she later paid to meet Ira Glass like a creep. She has embarrassed herself in front of Roxanne Gay, Nancy Pearl, and Malcolm Gladwell in separate incidences. She thought the Pulitzer Prize was the Pullet Surprise until she was like 17. At age 28, she attended an eight-month writing residency in her mom's downstairs bedroom. She is from Florida. Friends such as photographer Darren Dean have described her pieces thusly. It got long, but then it ended. And yet, and yet freelance writing continues to be wildly pursued in many fields, including personal finance. Why? Despite the intro, Paulette Perhatch's writing has been published in the New York Times, Vox, Ellie, Slate, Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Marie Claire, and many others. Her book, Welcome to the Writer's Life, was published in 2008 by Sasquatch Books, part of the Penguin Random House publishing family, and was selected as one of the poets and writers' best books for writers. Ben Luthi started blogging and freelancing in 2013. In 2015, he became a staff writer at NerdWallet and then eventually student loan hero. A year later, he converted to freelancing full-time. He specializes in credit cards, but is passionate about helping people gain clarity in their finances and to take actionable steps to improve their lives. And Emily Guy Birkin is a freelance journalist and author of multiple books, including her latest, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, which is set to drop early next year. Her passion is to work with women who want to have a better relationship with money and want to feel more confident about their finances. Paulette, Ben, Emily, welcome to Earn and Invest. Paulette, after reading my intro there, I almost feel that if you want to be a writer, a freelancer, nonetheless, you might want to get used to or comfortable with this idea of rejection. That is correct. That is why I wrote that section of my bio, because I think it looks all pretty on the author's bios and in the author's photos. And the reality of it is that it's near constant rejection, like a lot of creative fields. And that is also why I post all my rejection letters on Instagram. So that people really see that it continues to be the life, but that's okay. Ben, constant rejection, not usually something we dream of when we're in college. We know that you freelance right now, but like when you're in college, did you get a degree or a master's or something that kind of pushed you towards freelance writing? Not writing, no. Finance. So I had a degree in finance, but my I had a financial planning class my last semester and one of the assignments that we could choose to do, we had some electives. One of them was to write some kind of family finance articles for this local website. 
And that was the very first experience I had writing about personal finance in, in this manner. Now, if someone went back and asked you, high school, college, Ben, would you have said, yeah, I was a pretty good writer? No, <laughs> not at all. I got my first job at NerdWallet because I knew credit cards, uh, not because I was a good writer. I actually, my uh, boss at the time, after about a year, I had switched over to a different department. And she told me, you know, if you don't like it, you can't come back because you're not a good enough writer. Oh. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Emily, let's talk about that. Because what Ben just said is really interesting. Most of us imagine that someone who ends up being a freelance writer does it because they really love writing. What Ben is saying is that I really loved kind of personal finance and the finance stuff, and it led to a career in writing. How about for you? When you were in college, were you like, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I'm doing with my life. Yes, I was woefully literary as a as a teenager and, and college <laughs> student, you know, like cape flapping in the wind sort of was was what I, I, I intended for my my life. That that kind of woefully literary. I double majored in French literature and English with a an emphasis in creative writing. So if you told 21-year-old me that in 10 years I would start a career writing about money, I would have been horrified, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you, what do you mean it's not literary enough? It, yes, yes. And in fact, when I first started writing, so my my origin story as a writer is I actually am an English teacher by training. I, I taught high school English for four years. And then two things happened in the same year. My husband got a job in another state and we were expecting our first child because I'm great at timing. The first child was due at the beginning of the next school year. Knowing I wasn't going to get a, a teaching job for that school year, the plan was I was going to take a year off. And I wanted to just keep a little bit of money coming in. My goal was to be able to keep paying my student loans. And so I started looking for, for, for writing gigs just because I've always been a writer. Never occurred to me that money would be what I'd write about. But I found pretty quickly that uh, even though I was interested in writing in education and parenting and travel, you know, even food, you know, kind of the, the, the typical niches, I found that for one thing, the finance people were the ones who paid most consistently when you're early freelancing. Early on, I was invited to come to the first FinCon. And my first thought was like, I don't know if I want to write about money. I mean, I don't want to be pigeonholed like that. And then it occurred to me about six weeks before the first FinCon, I was like, people want to pay me to write. What am I doing? Why am I going to say no to that? Like, that's my dream just because it doesn't look exactly the way I thought. So that's how I ended up in this. And I do then give the caveat of like, it wasn't completely out of left field that I ended up writing about money. I've always been a money nerd. My dad was a financial planner. And so I, I've always thought deep thoughts about money, but those just weren't woefully literary enough for me <laughs> as, as an early 20 something to think about as a possible career option. Paulette, what came first, the financial aspect or the writing aspect? Definitely the writing aspect. And, you know, from I told my best friends at the bus stop when I was 10 years old that I wanted to be a writer. And she said, Do you have any idea how hard that is? And I told that story <laughs> at my book launch, and she was there. And I said, You were right. <laughs> I did not know how hard it would be. And I, what made me fantasize about being a magazine writer and someone who's like a travel writer is the, financial chaos I grew up in. And so I didn't see a lot of financial power around me. And I said, oh, that'll be, that'll be my scam, right? That's how I'll get abroad is I'll have a magazine send me, right? So mag writing was my way to the places I wanted to go. It literally did not even occur to me that I could just earn the money to take my own trips. And so I always wanted to be a writer, like total, you know, middle school yearbook, high school yearbook, magazine journalism degree, like tromp it along. But then I became a reporter and realized I wanted to go a little more creative. And so joined Peace Corps. And it was in Peace Corps that I decided I wanted to be a creative writer. And then it was creative writing, which brought me, it was really a, a fictional story that went viral about money and brought me over to writing about personal finance, which has been just a really funny, unexpected side road to my life, but, but so valuable. And I just have learned so much from the personal finance community, which has helped me be successful as a freelance writer. Ben, I feel like your story is fundamentally different than Paulette's and Emily's. 
for them, it was kind of this love of writing. It started with kind of academia and creativity. With you, it started specifically with personal finance. So you take this job with NerdWallet, you realize, okay, I'm going to be writing on a regular basis. Did you feel like there was some type of certifications or credentials you needed? I mean, how do you go from someone who kind of doesn't dream of writing to being a freelance writer on a regular basis? Well, I kind of I figured out pretty early on that you don't have to be a great writer to get started. There's a wide variety of you know publications, companies out there that need content. And so, I mean, even though my first personal finance blog, I, I can go back and read some of the stuff I wrote now and it's just horrific. <laughs> but I had companies reach out to me based on that content that I had written because they wanted the expertise. And so as far as certifications, not really. I mean, even, even now, I don't feel like I'm the best writer. I feel like I'm really good writing what I write about. But in terms of like branching out, like creative writing, uh, book writing, stuff like that, I don't know if I'm there. Yeah, definitely a healthy dose of imposter syndrome throughout this whole process. But ultimately, like what I have realized is that it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what my editors think. And over time, in the beginning, I got a lot of feedback. In fact, I got really early on in my freelance writing career. I got an email from one of my clients and they said, these are all of the issues that we've seen with your work. And it was like a page and a half of stuff. And it was really helpful. Like, you know, I had that initial anxiety in my chest, but I realized like this guy, he's not doing this. He's not firing me. He's coaching me. He's helping me. And then also at NerdWallet, I had, I had a really good editor who he would actually print out from WordPress. He would print out my drafts. And he would do the editing by hand. And then he would sit me down and say, okay, these are the things that, that I've noticed that you do a lot. These are the things that, you know, we can tighten up, things like that. And so having good editors really helped me to, to hone my writing skills. But I've never felt like I need to, you know, go back to school and get a journalism degree or a writing degree, anything like that. One thing that I think is, is important for people who are interested in breaking into freelancing is understanding something is good writing if it's clear. And so I feel like my years of teaching are what have really positioned me to be a good writer because I was used to breaking down difficult concepts in a way that is clear to people who don't want to be there. <laughs> so like the benefit of writing yeah. now is that generally people want to be in my, my articles. So I don't have to quite spoon feed with honey quite as much as I did with teenagers. That's something that I think there's this sense of for people who are not necessarily in the writing community that good writing is flowery it is funny it is you know plays with words in a way and that's that that can be true but ultimately what's what's needed is clarity and so i think that that's something that's a common misconception and then just thinking about the importance of of good editors is very true. I, you know, I've been a writer my whole life. I've always considered myself a good writer. I have no imposter syndrome about my writing. I actually had imposter syndrome about the finance early on. I was like, oh, people are going to find out I'm an English major who speaks French and I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Even though, you know, journalism is about, you know, going out and finding the information. But even that. When I was working on my fourth book with, because uh, um, I've stacked my most recent is my fifth. So my fourth book was not my first rodeo. My longtime editor sent me a message saying, hey, could you do me a favor? And I was like, sure, what do you need? And he said, I want you to get a hammer. I want you to put it beside your, <laughs> your computer. And anytime you feel the urge to type the word particular or particularly, I want you to hit your left kneecap as hard as possible. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> Oh, I guess I do use that word a lot. <laughs> so this is, you know, that was eight years into my into my freelance writing career, four books in. I still needed a an editor to point out to me this this habit that I had that was really annoying. I uh, wanted to go to Ben's story because I really felt like it's such a good example of the need for subject matter experts 
there's so much clickbait and BS on the internet. And I think especially for someone who's thinking about, hey, I want to transition into freelance writing, thinking about what you know about almost every single topic. If you're like, well, I've had this whole other career, that's probably great. You've probably learned so much in that career that you can start to write about and actually bring value. You know, if I could think of a one particular topic I'd like to write about, I would have loved to double major in college. I think that's one of the best ways to double major in maybe journalism or writing and then whatever you want to write about. I think that would have been great, but I'm like, it's too many things. So I think it's really important to know that that it is these two sides and you might be stronger in the subject matter expert area or stronger in the writing area or stronger in the, you know, the business. Like I have a very good business mind. I have very good business skills. And so I know how to run my freelance writing business, which is what it is in a way that is profitable and scalable. Subject matter expertise is, is super important, especially in finance, because you have to be correct. When I'm writing about credit cards, I can't, I can't miss the information. I can't, I can't say the wrong annual fee. I can't say because these companies I write for my clients, they're essentially the marketing arm for these credit card companies because they're affiliates. And so they can get dinged if I write something incorrect. And same thing goes with, you know, if I'm writing about mortgages, I'm writing about personal loans, student loans, you know, any of these financial products. And, and even if I'm just writing an advice piece, I mean, we want to make sure that we're giving people good advice and also objective advice. I feel like if I didn't have that background in finance, it would have been a lot harder for me to get into it. But because I had that background, because I had and still have that passion to learn more and more about you know, how these different products can help people, things like that, then it, it's made it a lot easier to, like Emily said, to be able to explain that in a way that people can understand it. Emily, it sounds like whether you are more comfortable on the writing side or more comfortable on the subject matter expert side, either way, both of you are going to have to kind of learn as you go, that it's a continual process of refining and learning how, how to be a freelance writer. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The things that you start off working on kind of help you build into what you end up becoming a subject matter expert in, for instance. So I'm considered a subject matter expert in retirement at this point. And that's because of you know the, the long history of things that I've written about retirement. And I had to teach myself. I mean, I, I, I knew a lot of the, the, the basics about retirement, but it was entirely through, through research, through reading other books on retirement, through uh, reading other, other freelancers writing about retirement and kind of taking in information is what helped me to become a subject matter expert. One of the things that I, it's also done is that it's helped me become a better writer. When I was writing my first book, The Five Years Before You Retire, I read like half a dozen or maybe or more retirement books. And one of my pet peeves was that the authors never included their math. They they would say something and then like, they're like, so if you have a million dollar nest egg, you can expect a $40,000, live on $40,000 a year. You know, they'd say something like that. And I'd be like, where's that number coming from? What do, why, why do you say 40,000? What, where does that end? Because I was confused by what they were talking about, I feel like that made me a better writer because I said, I will always make sure I include the math, no matter how simple it seems to me, just to make sure, because I can't assume that my reader knows my, my thought processes. I can't assume that they are coming into this knowing what the assumptions are before this industry. And so that, that sort of thing, like as you continue working, you'll find these, these different pieces that are missing in other aspects of, the, of whatever you're writing in, whatever subject you're writing in, and you, know, you will grow and learn and change as you go. In a moment, I want to get to something Paulette said about freelancing being a business. But before we do that, Ben, Emily was mentioning that she's considered a subject matter expert in retirement. And I want to take it back to the beginning. There are a lot of people out there right now who are like, I would like to freelance and they have zero portfolio. How do you go about getting that first gig, like that first writing assignment? It's a process. So I, uh, I help run the Freelance Writer Academy. And in that we talk about the, in the beginning, you, you basically have to create your online presence. 
And so that often includes a blog where you, you're writing your own thoughts about you know, the subjects that you want to talk about. And then also we talk about doing a couple of guest posts, basically just making sure that you know, your byline is on somebody else's website. It gives you a little bit more authority and kind of gives you an opportunity to build out that portfolio, portfolio a little bit. And then once you have that, then you start cold pitching. And you kind of you get an idea of the type of websites, you know, topics that you want to cover, websites that you want to write for. And then you you start sending out cold pitches to editors. A long process to get up and running. There is a lot of rejection. And it can be and it can be difficult to find, you know, the information. You know, I've, I recommend using LinkedIn, Twitter to find editors. And you can you can submit things, you know, you can submit pitches and things there, or you can get contact information there. But yeah, it really, it really starts with, you know, you need to get some of your work on the internet. And if you don't have anything on the internet yet, you're going to have a hard time convincing anybody to let them write for, let you write for their website. And so that's why I typically recommend people starting in their own blog. Uh, doesn't need to be fancy, just needs to, you know, be look good enough and have good enough content that people can see that. And then, and then the, the, a couple of guest posts, I don't recommend a lot of guest posts because I mean, you're not getting paid for this. So you just want to kind of get the foundation there. I think also contacting people who you've already worked with and letting them know, like I'm starting freelancing. Would you keep me in mind if you hear of anyone who needs a writer? Like, is there a smaller ask, you know, because so many times you will, it is word of mouth. Someone needs a writer for their website or whatever. I, I think it's great. Uh, like Ben said, to get a, a byline as quickly as possible if you can. And yes, blogging is very good. And just being discoverable, you know, so many times, like I, I actually got a, an assignment for the New York times through Twitter because an editor said, Hey, I really like how you tweet about it was, she's like, I, I love the things you're saying about money. And she ran a section called show us your wall about people and the art they collect. And she's like, we really want to make sure we have a financially diverse group. And usually people who collect art are millionaires um, or people who can afford art. And so I got to do this incredible story about this local artist in Seattle who collected art and all the, all the creative ways he afforded it. And so, you know, I, you just never know who's watching. And I think that's important, why it's important to just start doing the thing you want to do and let people find you and also not being afraid to say, Hey, I'm doing this. Would you keep me in mind? I want to add to that. It's, it's important early on to network, not just in talking with people that you've worked with in the past, as in addition to, for example, attending conferences. My first conference was FinCon in 2014, and I, I didn't have enough money to attend. I got a scholarship to go, and I drove because I couldn't afford to fly, and I slept on an air mattress in the hotel room with two other guys because I couldn't afford my own hotel room. But that conference is where I got the job at NerdWallet. That was the that was the beginning. That was the conversation that eventually it was a few months later. But that's where I got that job was talking to people, you know, helping them understand what I knew about credit cards. I also found a few freelance contracts there with different companies that just needed freelancers. And I know now they have a more robust freelance writer marketplace where people can go and talk to companies and connect and stuff like that. But yeah, networking, attending conferences in your niche that you want to explore, those are also important things. Something that I think is also important to let people who want to get into freelancing know is that this is a different game than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So I, I had a mentor who was a traditional freelance writer. She'd been doing it since like the early eighties. And so she was entirely in print, like everything that she wrote was in print and she had a much tougher road to hoe in terms of getting her byline in front of editors, contacting, contacting various places to, to write for them. And she had, she told me that there were, she had some tough, tough years, like, but she never didn't write, but tough years. She was writing how to like manuals for washers and dryers, you know, like not at all interesting. Her bread and butter were like alumni magazines. But the thing is, 
when I would see what that friend of mine went through compared to what's what's going on in the internet age, because there's so much content on the internet, because it is churning all the time, there is much, much, much more availability for writers to break in and less of a waiting time. That's that's one of the things that I, I'm so impressed with, with Paulette is I, I've been wanting to break into print magazines for a while. And I find that I don't have the patience for it between with it. You get these rejections and that's fine. But then I, I'm like, okay, so now I got to pick up and go back out again. And the whole process takes so long that like, I just, my motivation doesn't last that long. Whereas everything on online, it happens quickly. And so that's one thing that I think makes this a lot easier for, for uh, newbie freelancers in the 2020s than newbie freelancers even in the, the 2000s or, or the early 2010s. You've got a lot out there. There's a lot of money to be made out there because everyone needs the content. And so, and there's specialized um, niches everywhere. And it, it's a barrier to entry. If you show up, you have some bylines under your belt, like uh, like Ben was saying, like on on your blog or guest posts, and you're you're open to being edited. You you can do quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's such a good example. And also, Emily, I don't have the children, so that's a big difference, <laughs> right? But um, you know, I think it, they are motivation sappers. <laughs> yes, right. But that's why I actually ended up kind of creating a, what is now becoming a piece of software for writers called the writer's mission control center. Cause I'm like, I don't have time. Like second, a rejection comes in, I got to send out another one. Like, so mm-hmm. it's really about thinking on the level of operations and you're like operations, I'm a writer. And it's like anything that applies to any business applies to you as well. And I also have in there a matrix to help you decide why you're doing work. And it is low, medium, high for compensation and desirability. And so it is like, I do not like this. I am getting paid $2,000. I will do it. I do like this. I'm getting paid 16 cents a word. I usually charge a dollar a word, but I really like talking to artists or I really like working with this editor. I really want this byline. And so it is this constant ebb and flow of seeing number one, how your bank account's doing. And if it's doing nicely, then you can say, okay, now I have a few minutes to, okay, try, try to get into Rolling Stone again, or, you know, or, Hey, I'm not going to try to send out those, all those pitches or all those uh, letters to the literary magazines for which I will get two contributors copies. If my piece gets accepted, I'm going to go write some web copy for someone who needs me. So definitely a back and forth and you have to maintain the bank account. And also I think feel like striving for your dream. Cause that's the fun part of it is there's no cap on it. There's no one who's like, here is your 3% raise because you have done a satisfactory job this year. It's like coming up on the end of the year. I'm like, all right, what's my job description next year. And I'm actually, I am retiring or promoting myself out of one of my squares, which is high compensation, low desirability. I mean, unless talk to me about how many zeros it is. Like, I'm not saying forever, but for right now <laughs> I'm like, I'm making the leap to like, I'm not going to do work. I don't like anymore that I'm not meant for. And so like, you can continue to push yourself and be like, what is my next dream? And dreaming a little bigger and a little bigger. And there's no one telling you how big you're allowed to dream. That's what I love. So we are talking freelance writing, especially in the personal finance space with Paulette Perhatch, Emily Guy-Birkin, and Ben Luthi. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. 
Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. When I first got involved in investing, the hardest part for me was not only what to invest in, but how, and that's why I'm excited to tell you about an app that I really like using called public.com. On public.com, you can start with small slices of shares and invest in what you believe in in any amount. Public is not just a place to invest, but really a social platform where you can exchange ideas with other investors It makes it easy to learn and invest and surrounds you with a community of others who are investing in stocks and ETFs and even crypto, which is now available on public. Not only that, but it's set up so that there are guardrails. You can invest with built-in educational features that help you learn as you go and invest safely with volatility reminders that let you know investments like crypto are a little bit riskier. Start investing with as little as $1 and get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join public.com today. Visit public.com slash EAI to download the app and sign up using code EAI. That's public.com slash EAI and code EAI. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 and older subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. This is not investment advice. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Ben Luthi, Emily Guy Birkin, and Paulette Perhatch about freelance writing, especially in the personal finance space. Ben, let's talk about the dollars and cents. You three all support yourself by freelance writing. Tell us how that feels, how difficult it is to do this, and how long it took you to get enough business to feel like you could freelance as your main gig. I feel like my story is a little different than most people because I you know, I started in 2013 and then I freelanced for about a year and a half and then I got the full-time job at NerdWallet. And getting that full-time job really kind of accelerated everything for me because once I left NerdWallet, it was, you know, I sent an email to Credit Karma or Forbes or whatever and say, hey, I was a credit card writer for NerdWallet. And that was kind of an instant uh He's obviously a good enough writer to write for NerdWallet, regardless of what my boss said about me. So that really helped me get along. But then I was at Student Loan Hero for about a year and a half, and I was I was able to freelance on the side. That's why I left NerdWallet, because they wouldn't let me freelance. It took me about a year and a half to get to the point where I felt like comfortable enough to, to start doing it full-time. But had I, had I not taken the job at NerdWallet, it may have taken longer, but... All told, it took me about five years to get from, you know, I started blogging, started freelancing to I became a full-time freelancer. Paulette, talk about the economics. Is this a good way to make a living? A good way to make a living. God, such a loaded question. (laughs) Um, Yes, you can make a good living at freelancing. Is it, I'm at a rock concert writing about musicians and who I'm going to party with afterward? No, it is not. It is about having your needs taken care of, which is a mix of frugality. I have a freezer full of bulk cooked food for myself because I try to keep my expenses as low as possible and upping the quality of your clients, of your work and yourself as a business person so that you can make more and more. But I mean, yeah, you can make some really good money because if you have someone who is a high level, you know, like one of my clients is Kirsten Jordan, who is the first female cast member of million dollar listing. She is a busy businesswoman, and she needs good content and she doesn't want to have to put up with rookie crap, you know? And I'm like, I've been in this game a long time. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. I can solve your problem. If you find people who have a lot of money, who have a big problem you can solve with your writing business, they're going to be happy to support you and keep you because they don't want to try to find someone else. They want someone they can trust. And I think that's a really big point. So yeah, you can make a great living at this. And I I really like it. One thing that I think is important to note is that I think there are going to end up being some sorts of of support. It's not a, a situation where you quit your job and you start freelancing and, and you're immediately making six figures. And so in my case, my husband was working full-time in a corporate job. 
And it's through him that we get our health insurance. And I honestly am not sure if I did not have that case and I, you know, did have two kids, I don't know that I'd be able to, to be a freelancer, even though I'm very successful at it and I love it and it's the, the, the right job for me. So that's one thing that I think is, is really important to, to acknowledge going into this. Another is you're not going to make much early on. My first freelance writing gigs, I was getting $25 per post. Now this was back in 2010. So, you know, the, the, the inflation means it's not quite so terrible as it sounds. <laughs> but the other thing, I can remember some cognitive dissonance about this in that what I'm doing doesn't feel like it's that hard. We were getting our, we had to have our, our roof replaced. And so we had a whole crew working on the roof. And at the time I was writing um, an article about driving, what it's like to drive for an insurance company in a particular state, or it, the article was for an insurance company. It was about what it was like to drive in a particular state. I was, they didn't give me all 50 states, but I got like 20 of them and I was getting like 900 bucks per article. And it took me mm, four hours tops to write it. And so I'm writing this article these guys are working on the roof and I'm thinking like they're working so much harder than I am hmm. and I'm getting paid so much more than they are. And so like the little socialist in me was just like, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> but then it was also like the sense of like, well, this is, you know, this is how I know that I'm in the right position for what I, my particular skills are that I can get this kind of remuneration for something that doesn't feel hard for me but is is pays well and it's something i enjoy doing i like i legitimately loved writing all these these articles about what it's like to drive in various states and i am not sweating outside on top of a roof <laughs> yeah it's i mean the the important thing is that again it's it's a business and and you have to treat it like a business i mean i've written for probably over 60 70 different websites because over time, as as you know, as my skills improved, as I got better at writing, as I gained new clients, you know, I was able to replace lower paying clients with higher paying clients. And in the last few years, I've also started tracking my hourly rate, you know, because all of my articles that I write are it's it's a per article rate. And so I use this uh, tool called Toggle, T O G G L, and when I start an article, I track it. And it kind of, I guess it kind of works similar to the Pomodoro technique where you're, you're timing yourself, you focus on that, but that has really helped me to say, you know, I go back every you know, few months, I take a look at my client list. I look at my hourly rate, you know, it doesn't honestly, doesn't matter as much anymore to me, how much they're paying me. It's how much I'm making per hour writing these articles. And so then, you know, if I will look and see, you know, you know, these, this client, you know, they're paying me about half uh, my average, you know, on the hourly rate scale. And so then I say, okay, looks like it might be time to either ask for a raise or to potentially drop them and look for something else. And again, expanding your, like I started writing about credit cards, credit cards. When I started writing about credit cards, it was very, very lucrative, but uh, especially since the pandemic, I mean, it's kind of, it's not as lucrative as it was. And so it's like, okay, I need to write about more than just credit cards. And so now it's like pretty much anything personal finance because I've spent so much time trying to build my own knowledge base, you know, write for clients that cover this type of stuff. I can cover pretty much anything under that umbrella. And so it is it is important. I mean, obviously the passion for the topic, the passion for writing are super important, but it's all like you have to you have to treat it as a business. You have to track you know, what you're making from each client, you have to track those different indicators to help you kind of maximize your profits. Well, let's talk competition. I mean, as Emily was saying, this is a different freelancing world than it was in the early 2000s, right? You have the internet, you have more copy needing to be written than ever. And yet you've got everyone and their brother who probably thinks they can be a freelance writer. When you look at the community as a whole, do you find it more supportive or cutthroat? Oh. I think supportive, but I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna where I'm just like, everyone's so nice. And yeah, I mean, the good work is going to rise to the top and we're all in it together. I think we're, we all know how hard it is. And so what I've found is just a lot of support. And, you know, I think that 
it's a belief system in a way. It's the belief that I can be out here doing this work that is tough and make it. I, you know, I, I say in my book, like when you're in a nine to five, you can often get away with mediocrity. When you are running your own freelance business, you can't. You and I think especially if you're trying to be a creative writer, you know, I always joke, I'm like, I'm a writer, which is lonely and unstable. So I became an entrepreneur, which is also lonely and unstable. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I I just see a lot of of support out there and and there's a lot of different groups. And I think that's one of the most important things of making it is finding that community on Twitter, on groups on Facebook, and and plugging yourself into the people who who know what's what. And I and I think it'll probably depend on the topic, the niche that you choose, but personal finance in particular, use that word in particular, I think <laughs> will there's there's a lot of support. I mean, I, I have met write, writers in this niche who are very competitive. You know, they don't want to share their clients, even if their clients ask them, you know, if they know any other writers, they're not going to help, which is weird to me. But I, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a group on Facebook with about 25 writers. And I would say the majority of us are six figure freelancers. And so there's obviously enough work out there for, for all of us. I definitely don't view it as a zero sum game. And, and in this group, I mean, we share, we share opportunities. If I get an opportunity and they say, you know, do you know anybody else? Or if I get an opportunity and, you know, I can't take extra work right now, then I will share it in the group. And, and we do that. We help each other out. And at no time have I ever experienced, you know, have I ever lost out on money because there are other writers who write about the same things. Something that I think is important and and interesting about what happens when you have this collaborative view is that it means that everyone benefits. There was this one funny moment where a, a freelancer that Ben and I both know, Kat Trotina, was telling us about she had a new potential client who had reached out to her and they were pushing back on the, the price that she quoted them, which I think was something like $700 per post. And they were saying, oh, well, we, we've also talked to Emily Guy Birkin and she's willing to take $500 per post. And uh, they had not spoken to me. I had never heard of these people. And Kat's response was like, oh, you got Emily for $500. She's fantastic. Go with her. <laughs> That's, that, that is the right price. And they got very quiet on the phone and they said, we'll email you back. <laughs> and so she told me about this and they ended up agreeing to her price. No, I don't know why they, 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 they lied about that. That story it like it was funny to begin with but it made me re- realize like the the strength that we have in collaborating and talking to each other because if cat and i weren't you know friendly colleagues who who you know shared these sorts of things with each other then you know she may never have known and she would have been like oh okay well if that's what emily's offering maybe i'll offer less or you know whatever so that's one thing that i think can be really really beneficial is if you find your your niche and you know make friends with and feel like you know friendly collegiality with with others in the particular area you're writing in you're you're going to have wonderful opportunities that you can share with each other. And it also keeps the clients honest. (laughs) I'll let ever concerns of market saturation again, especially in our post COVID world where people like, I don't want to be in an office anymore. Freelancing looks like an exciting field. Uh, Could you see a point where we have more writers than gigs? I mean, maybe, but do we have more writers who are organized, dedicated, continue to study, you know, it, it, it's that, that, that's the edge. That's the push where you're like, I got to keep, keep hustling. And I am not for like hundo percent hustle culture. Mama likes a nap. I love to (laughs) pop off at 4 PM to go get a happy hour drink. Love it. Right. That's what I love about making more and more per hour is you're like, I'm buying my hours to go have party time. And so maybe in a sense, yes. In the way that you are, if you're not differentiated, if you're not branding yourself, if you're not marketing or networking, and you're just going on job boards to where there are a million people responding to a 10 cent per word post, then yes, that's going to feel very saturated. And I think that the way that you rise above that saturation is by practicing the skills that businesses know about because you are a small business owner. 
Yeah. If you go on Upwork or freelancer.com, you're going to find thousands and thousands of writers, you know, especially overseas who are willing to write thousand word articles for five bucks. But is the quality of that article going to be what these clients want to, to put on their websites to, you know, to get, you know, as copy as SEO, anything like that. And so, yeah, there definitely, I, I think there will always be enough jobs for quality writers. And I, it definitely, there will be opportunities for people who are subject matter experts who want to kind of go into this field. And I mean, I've met people who have done that recently where I know one writer, Michelle Black, who she just kind of came out of nowhere, but she had, you know, she had a credit repair business and she knows everything about credit. And she decided she wanted to get into writing and she's an incredible writer. She knows way more about credit than most people I know. And so, yeah, there's going to be people like that. uh, And there are going to be people who can fill in uh, and can earn money. But in terms of, you know, if you want to put in the dedication, you want to put in the work to become a top tier writer, there will always be opportunities. There's kind of three things. If you, if you can bring those, you're going to succeed. One of them is time. Like it's going to take time. And so if, you know, for a lot of people who are dreaming of freelancing, they're trying to do it while also working a nine to five so that they can do that. And that is going to be the hardest thing to bring to it, depending on what kind of nine to five you have. When I was teaching, there is no way possible that I could have tried freelancing on top of it. It just, there, there weren't enough hours in the day. So I had the time because I was staying home with a baby. So having that time, and that I think is in a lot of ways, the biggest barrier to entry for most people. Do you have the time to devote to it without getting a lot of money until you get the traction? The next thing is talent of some kind. So that could be, you know, I, I brought, you know, a creative mindset. And I think Paulette had the same kind of experience to something that doesn't often ask for a creative writing mindset. And so articles for my first clients that they were finding that were going, you know, mini viral, just because you're, you were used to very straight dollars and cents type stuff. So it could be that your subject matter expert is what you bring, like whatever the talent is. So, you know, whatever that is, lean into whatever it is that you bring to it that you're good at. And then the third thing is professionalism. And so that includes uh, things like not missing deadlines. Now I say that, and I'm sure if any of my editors are listening, they're <laughs> laughing their butts off because I am a chronic deadline misser. However, though I do miss deadlines, I am constantly in contact. My editors always know what to expect from me. I don't want to say that it's okay to miss deadlines. I just, just want people to know that it's common. My uh, freelancing mentor, Kathy, she made me feel so much better when I was early on going like, oh God, I'm terrible at this. She's like, eh, whatever. But again, it's the the contact, taking it seriously, making it clear what the, what the uh, expectations are. And then making sure that, you know, when you get a job, you put your all into it, you give 100% to it. So that, you know, when I take a job for, for something, a subject that, that I know quite a bit about, I still research it to make sure that what I know isn't outdated, to make sure that I, I don't know something that isn't correct. And so bringing that professionalism to what it is that you're turning in, I, I haven't seen anyone who has all three of those things not succeed. The people who wash out are the ones who, you know, often they don't have the time. And that is something that is pretty much outside of your control. Everyone has some kind of talent to bring to it. Like there's, there's not a single person who I'm going to say doesn't have a talent to bring to this, but they may not bring the professionalism. That's the one that I think that you have the most control over that is the most likely to bite you in the butt. I love that. I think that's so important. I had one coaching client who she was like, I want to get into freelancing, but I don't have a lot of good experience. And I was like, oh, what'd you do before? She goes, I was a project manager. I was like, are you kidding me? How many editors would want to work with a project manager someone who knows how to plan out things? Oh my goodness. Like, so you're going to have these different strengths. And I think understanding your strengths and leaning into them and having such a different style. I think that's, what's cool is to see all the ways that people come to freelance writing and how many strategies there are. I read this book, Understanding Michael Porter. And it was, I loved reading it because it was so beyond, it was, it was business strategy for like GE. And I love reading at that level, like good to great, you know, where I'm this tiny little freelancer. It's almost like, 
how physics, the laws of physics apply at all levels, right? Or it's like the laws that apply to GE also apply to you. And so he says, pretty much you have to decide who you're going to disappoint. If you're like, I'm a project manager and I'm a very linear thinking, I'm going to disappoint the people who want the flowery writing. If I'm a creative writer, I'm going to disappoint the people who don't want me to put in, you know, flowery writing. So there are so many different styles and it's just about knowing who you are and maximizing if you're coming from the SME side, or if you're coming from the creative side and saying, this is the kind of person I am and not, not only not being afraid to disappoint people, but deciding ahead of time who you're going to disappoint. Ben, all three of you are successful freelance writers. I feel like we've been talking very optimistically. What's the worst part of freelancing for you? Oh man, it can get boring at times. You know, when you're writing about personal finance, it's mostly SEO writing that you're doing. And so you're you're just kind of providing the the content that the client needs. You know, you don't you don't always get a lot of opportunity to be creative or sometimes to learn new things. I mean, because I've been writing so long that you know a lot of the topics that I write about are things that I've written about time and time again. And then there's also just the burnout. There, you know, I I write on average 60 articles a month. And so it's, it's just, it's constant, you know, constant writing, constant work. And it, yeah, it gets to the point where I just, I, sometimes I just need a break. And for example, next month I'm taking the the second half of December off just because I just need to not <laughs> write for a little while. And so it, it can be difficult, even, even having, you know, freedom as a full-time freelancer to really, you know, I can travel whenever I want to, I can work, you know, whenever I want to, I can stay out as late as I want to on weekdays, I can sleep in as long, you know, as late as I want. It's still, it can be a challenge to find a good balance between the work and, and your, your normal life. Emily, tell us about burnout. It can be a major problem. You know, something Paulette said earlier is that uh, you can have you can be mediocre at a nine to five, and you can't be mediocre if if you're a freelancer. And that's actually, I think, what has caused me to burn out on occasion is that I can't have a day. There are no tasks that I can do with half my mind with freelancing, with the exception of invoicing, which you know takes an hour once a month. <laughs> And so I have a tendency to kind of overload my schedule because if I'm not working, I'm not earning. And so Ben, I have no idea how you do 60 articles a month. That is amazing. <laughs> I have an upper limit of about 20, 25 is, is about the most that I can do. Some of that I know is, you know, I got small kids at home and that that affects, I, I can only write while they're at school. And so, you know, you get random, random, no school days, so on and so forth. And that just throws everything off. Burnout is something that I think can definitely happen because this is a creative field, even if it doesn't necessarily feel creative sometimes, because you are doing work that comes from within, like no matter what you're doing, even if you're, you're, you know, researching the top 10 credit myths or, you know, things that feel like they're not particularly creative. And that's something I didn't really understand until my husband was working from home during the pandemic. He is an engineer. And, you know, I think of that as a very serious job. I do not think of what I do as a very serious job. (laughs) And I saw, because he's working from home, how much of his time is like he's got something running in the background while he's doing you know, something else because he just needs to run it in the background and keep an ear out for something and then write up a report. So it's not eight hours a day straight of like focused work. Whereas the writing that I do is focused work. And so forgetting how much that takes out of you can definitely cause burnout. And I actually, I took September off from paid work this year because and I, I realized when I stopped wanting to do any of the fun stuff that I usually do, I was like, I'm burnt out. Like I, I've got nothing left to give. I was missing deadlines more than usual. And so I decided I'd take September off and regroup and it, it made a huge difference. And that's something that I would encourage, you know, new freelancers to think about is like, how can you build in slack into your schedule so that you can have some of that recovery time that you need 
so that you don't get to the point where you're like, yeah, I, I don't feel like doing any of the things that are fun. I don't feel like working. I don't feel like doing anything. I had a really bad bout of burnout two weeks ago. It was, it was the second hardest week of the year. It was just really, really tough. And I had to reach out on Twitter. I was like, cry for help. I need all the gifts. I need all the love. And I was just so touched with how much the writing community responded. And it was like, like, you don't know how much you need your community until you need your community. And there's so many ways that people can support you from the literal, like, I will hire someone to help me with these assignments right now because I can't handle this stuff right now to, I need to take a break to someone just like calling you to make sure that you're okay. And everyone else kind of giving me their stories of times that they had messed up or that they felt burnout. It was really, really nice. So I think remembering that we're all in it together. And one of the benefits that I love about freelancing that Esme Wajun Wang, I believe her name is, talks about in her book is the ability to take care of yourself, you know, beyond the naps, which are a very important element, really being like, I need to take a mental health day. I'm going to walk away from this right now. I don't want to deal with this client. This is a toxic situation that I'm going to now terminate. F off fund. You have that control of your environment in a way that you don't get with traditional jobs that prevents burnout in some ways, but also there's certainly freelance burnout as well. I think that's a good place to end our conversation. I feel like you guys have really blown the cover off freelancing for us. I like this idea that with the time, a little bit of talent and some professionalism, all of us could pursue at least some freelance writing if we want to. It is a brave new world. The internet is big and expansive, and there are customers out there looking for copy. So if it's something that interests you, I believe it's something that maybe many of us could at least get involved in. I want to end this show the way I end every show, which is asking you each what is up next with your life and where we can find you if we want to know more. Ben, let's start with you. What is going on in your life and where can people contact you? Biggest thing I'm working on outside of freelancing is the Freelance Writer Academy. I'm actually doing it with Kat Tratina. Emily talked about her earlier and Miranda Marquette. And that's just a set of courses for people to to learn how to freelance write and build that business. We have a Facebook group as well to to offer kind of the real-time help. You can find me at benluthy.co and also freelancewriteracademy.com. And Emily, I'm sure I know at least part of the answer to this question, but what is going on in your life and how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? So the big thing for me is I have uh, a new book, Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, which I co-wrote with Joe Salcihai of the Stacking Benjamins podcast. It is debuting on December 28th. And then we are going to be on a book tour January through March. Joe, he's a little, little, little overzealous. He's going on 42 cities. I'm going to be about 17 of those cities, Boston through Minneapolis. So if you are on the East Coast or in the Midwest, you might be able to see me live with Joe. And so that's, you can find out information about that at my website, emilyguyberkin.com forward slash stacked. That gives you all the information about the book and about the book tour. You can also reach me on Twitter at Emily Guy Birkin. I am on Twitter a little too much, but I love to make new friends there. And last, but of course not least, Paulette, tell us what's happening in your life and where we can reach you if we want to know more. So if you want to start writing and network with some great other writers, you can write with me every every day except Sunday and a lot of other wonderful writers at a very important meeting which is a free writing and writer chat session. We have 20 meetings a week and that is a very important meeting.com. And then I do coaching and editing. I'm starting a program called powerhouse writers in January. And you can find out more about that on my website, which is you can find at that writer Paulette and you can follow me on Twitter uh, where I'm also there with Emily. Uh, a little too much at Paulette Perhatch and Instagram is at Paulette J Perhatch. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Paulette Perhatch, Emily Guy Birkin, and Ben Luthi. That's a wrap. 
Have you been trying to learn about real estate? I know many of us are, and even if we know a little, we could always learn more. That's why I send people over to the Financial Independence and Real Estate Podcast with Coach Carson. Chad, the coach, has two types of episodes, one in which he himself tells you the tips and tricks to this asset class, and the other is where he has guests proof of concept who show how they work towards financial independence using real estate. It is a great podcast. I highly suggest you check it out. Just go to coachcarson.com. Again, that's coachcarson.com. It is the real estate and financial independence podcast. Take a listen. You won't regret it. Cool. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I feel like you guys, I, I don't know. I felt like that, that you guys really got a chance and did talk a lot about what is freelance writing. Is there anything you think we missed? Uh, the only thing that, um, not missed, but, uh, just the, the, uh, talk a little bit about it, but like the issue of things like health insurance and taxes and stuff like that, the, the business mm -hmm. side of it, that can be tough to navigate if you don't have a, uh, um, don't have a, a guide. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you guys um, run your own businesses, which comes with, right. All of the problems of entrepreneurship, right. Health, health yeah. costs taxes, et cetera. Um, was that hard to adjust to Ben and Paulette? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I still, I don't get it. Like I've taken accounting classes. And so now I have, I have a bookkeeping consultant and my assistant does bookkeeping for me. And there is like a mental block where it comes to bookkeeping with me. And it, it really, really kills me. Uh, and it's like with the budget in QuickBooks, I got to put it in there, but not my salary because that's like a certain different kind of account. It is a whole other language I don't want to learn and I <laughs> freaking hate it so much. So as soon as you can, that's the other joy of earning more per hour is outsourcing all yeah. the stuff you hate. But yeah, I certainly was Googling all that crap for the first few years and I do not like it. Uh, it, it wasn't too difficult for me just because that's my background because I, I mean, I, I have a degree in finance and so I took accounting classes in college. I took finance classes in college and, you know, was doing my taxes, you know, from an early age. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a huge, but then once things, I mean, as my business grew and now I, I'm, I'm an S corp instead of just like a sole proprietorship LLC. So at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. And so then I found a guy, um, um, just finding a good C uh, CPA. Um, he's also an enrolled agent that used to work at the IRS. And so he's really been helpful at like these things, these, these things, <laughs> these that things are could like, get you in trouble, <laughs> right? Like these things that like the IRS is not super clear on. He's like, this is as, like, this is as, cause he likes to go a little radical with some things <laughs> where he's like, this is like, this is as far as you can push the IRS basically and still be okay. Um, so that's been helpful, but yeah, it's uh, even from the beginning, I mean, it, it, it's always been kind of a pain in the ass, but um, as far as the understanding the process and everything, that's just, that's, I learned it in college. And so it wasn't too difficult. I love this on my One Zoom screen. Ben is on the right and you guys are on the left. And I'm like, right brain, left brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the best things that I, I did for myself um, as, a, as an early freelancer when I was still get, just getting $25 per post, um, even with those tiny, tiny paychecks, I put aside 30% of everything I earned into a savings account um, to, to pay my quarterly taxes, which I didn't end up owing because I made too little. And so every year, uh, so that after that first year, I had money to invest back into my business because I didn't end up using it. And then I, by the time I was making more money, um, I was in the habit of it. Uh, and so like, that's, that's one of the things like people who are first starting out, I tell them like, do this, like when you're making nothing, start doing this when like, cause you, nothing minus 30% is still nothing. So <laughs> like you won't feel it as much. Yeah. Um, and that, that made a huge difference. And, and i like, is one of the habits I'm gladdest that I, I started off with. 
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.